Today I have quite a few goals uh, to accomplish. And the first one is that there are many Christs out there already, and there are many more to come, as you may well know. Jesus warned us consistently that there will be many false Christs, many false messiahs will come up. And the thing about a false messiah oftentimes is that he doesn't look that false. He actually kind of, sort of fits some of scriptures, but not all of it. I'll give you an example. Like, like Isa, the Jesus of the Quran, the Jesus of Islam, he kind of, sort of fits some profile of the Jesus of the New Testament, but not all of it. Like, for instance, um, you know, he, he never rose. Their Jesus never rose. Then you have, from the dead, and then you have Joseph Smith, and then you have Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> all these people create these kind of Jesuses that they want to submit to and that they would like to follow. But the way we know that our Jesus is authentic is simple. There's one way to know that the Jesus you serve is the actual authentic Jesus that God sent to die, and die on a cross, rise again, and to save you. The Jesus you can trust is the Jesus the Old Testament prophesied. Now, if our Jesus that we serve in the New Testament fulfills Old Testament prophecy 100%, then He's authentic. Amen? 100% then He's authentic. So, when we go through this lecture today, because it's more teaching, um, it's going to mean a lot to people that have been in the Word for a long time. Uh, but it will inspire others who might go like, what is that? It might inspire them to get into the Word more often. And, not, you know, when we would gr grew up, we used to have in the pastor's house uh, one of those little, it's a little bucket, and it has like a hundred little cards, or maybe 300 little cards. You know what I'm talking about, Ma? It looked like a loaf of bread. <laughs> yeah, the bread of life. <laughs> And so you would like in the morning, you would like pull one out and go like, ah, it's almost like a fortune cookie. You know, you pull the thing out and you read and you go like, this is for me today, you know. And so, why did I just say that? Okay. I'm believing that we're going to get into the Word in a much greater way. <laughs> because of this. All right, so the entire Bible from cover to cover, points to one person, Jesus Christ, right? Christ in all of the scriptures is what I want to refer to today. The entire Bible is about the Lord. The Old Testament says He is coming. The Gospels say He is here, starting with John the Baptist. The Acts proclaim Him. The Epistles explain Him. Revelation says He's coming again. Every single portion of Scripture points to one and one alone, Jesus Christ. The very first verse in Genesis reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth, right? We know that the Lord Jesus Christ was God's agent in creation. You might not know this, but the Bible actually says so. God spoke, Jesus created. The Bible says so in John 1 verse 3. It says, all things came into being through Him, Jesus. And apart from Him, Jesus, nothing came into being that has, being, that has come into being. Oh. 
Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things that have been created were created through Him and were created for Him, Jesus. Then the last verse in the Bible says in Revelation 22 verse, Revelation 22 verse 21 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Jesus Christ, the grace of Him be with you. Those are the bookends around the entire Bible because the entire Bible is about the one person, Jesus Christ, and what He, had, what he has come to do. We were given that word so that we can recognize Him and submit ourselves to Him as Lord, then He will save you. You don't accept Jesus the Savior. You submit to Jesus the Lord and He saves you. Nowhere does it say that you can receive Him as Savior. It says that you receive Him as Lord. It says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved by Him. God saves you from His own wrath against your sin. He saves you by Himself for Himself. This is our single purpose as human beings, to live for Him. So we see that those are the bookends around the entire Bible, and the entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. He is the Word that was made flesh. There isn't any part of the Word that wasn't Christ made flesh. Now let's see how Jesus plants Himself front and center in all of Scriptures. In Luke chapter 24, verse 13, I'd like for us to read together, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read from verse 13 all the way through to verse 27. Actually, let's read to 31, 35. Okay, listen. Luke 24, here we go. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Two disciples walking for seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, just to give you the setting. It was the day or the third day after Jesus was crucified. This was the first day they found that He was missing, and they thought that His body was stolen. Now these two disciples are walking for seven miles, which takes two hours, 119 minutes, if you walk average speed. And so this was the very day of the resurrection of Jesus. They did not know this yet, but they had heard reports that He was missing, and they were really sad, they were dejected, they were depressed. The wind was out of their sails. Why? Because uh, this one that they had put all of their faith in and their hope in to save Israel from Roman oppression, those hopes were shattered because Jesus had died. They had killed Him as far as these two disciples were concerned. Verse 14, And they were talking with each other about these things which had taken place. Verse 15, While they were, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus Himself approached and began traveling with them. Now remember, Jesus just rose from the dead. He has a resurrected body that can travel at the speed of thought, walk through walls, and eat food at the same time. That's what a resurrected body looks like. Isn't it exciting for us, something for us to look forward to? No more pains, no more aches, resurrected bodies. With resurrected minds, you can think, you can see, you can hear all the truths of God. 
So while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, verse 16, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And they said, and he said to them, what are those, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? So Jesus was trying to elicit a response from them, you see. And they stood still looking sad. Why were they sad? Because all their hopes were dashed. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only, visiting Jerus- uh, visit- the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these last days? In other words, hey, stranger, where have you been? Everybody knows what happened. And when they asked Jesus this question, he responds with, what things? Jesus was very funny, actually. He was humorous. And they said to him the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word in the sight of God and all of the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to, the sent- to, senten- to be sentenced to death and crucified him. But we were hoping, and here's why they were dip- disappointed, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also, some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And they said to them, or, and then he said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Was it not necessary for Him to do two things, to suffer these things, and number two, to enter His glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He exclaimed to them or explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Think about it. How awesome would that Bible study have been? To be a fly on the wall and hear Jesus talk about himself throughout all the scriptures, starting with Moses. Here is Jesus, the living word, expounding on the written word in our laps. This is Jesus teaching Jesus. Jesus understood that all of the prophets spoke with one voice in absolute unison about one subject, and that was the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. He knew he, was, he had already fulfilled all those prophecies. He knows who He is, and now it's starting to be revealed to everybody else. Jesus establishes Himself as the main theme of the entire Scriptures. Genesis through Malachi. There are three key words in verse 26 that we need to look at. Necessary, suffer, and glory. It was absolutely necessary for Jesus to suffer what He did and then to enter the glory which He did. Jesus was explaining that it was His purpose. Why? Because the Old Testament prophets had prophesied and He had to fulfill those prophecies in order to be authentic. In order to be the long-awaited Messiah, 
He had to match it perfectly. I mean, Jesus wasn't, he wasn't surprised that they wanted to crucify him on a cross like a snake lifted on a pole. He wasn't surprised that they were doing that to him in Jerusalem on Passover. That didn't surprise him. Why? Because that's what was prophesied would happen and he was going to fulfill every one of those prophecies. Are you all following? That's why he said it was necessary for him to suffer these things and to enter his glory. There will be many Christs, but only one can fulfill all these Old Testament prophecies. And this is how you know that the Jesus of the New Testament is the real Savior because he fulfills Old Testament prophetic requirements. Do you know the whole argument about, well, there's, there's not just one way. There are many ways. You know, there are many faiths. They all lead to one God. This proves otherwise. This is the proof that there can only be one, and He can only be that one. Because He's the absolute only one that fulfills all those prophecies. It was necessary that He suffered, what? Death upon a cross. And it's necessary that He would be glorified, how? In His resurrection. That's why He said, don't you realize, those of you who are so slow to believe that it's necessary for me to suffer upon a cross and it was necessary for me to be glorified in my resurrection. Verse 28, and they approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he were going farther. Jesus was an actor right here. Verse 29, but they urged him saying, stay with us for it is getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. It was during communion. When they saw what was going on, they go like, oh, wow. His body was broken. It was necessary to suffer. Their eyes were opened miraculously. They recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Again, resurrected body just disappears. Verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Now, I want to just stop there for a moment. <clears throat> were not our hearts burning? burning within us when He showed Himself to us in the Scriptures. That's why I want to do this today. We're not our hearts burning with us when we realized oh, He was that snake that Moses He was that rock that God He was Samson He was David He's every hero in the Bible. I am not the hero of every Bible story. Jesus is the hero of every Bible story. I'm the one who couldn't save myself and He came and saved me. Even when I didn't want to be saved sometimes, 
He comes and he saves. Why? Because he loves just like a father will save a child, even if a child is disobeying the father at that point. You still grab your child out of the road, even when it's not a time of his submission. God saves us, and this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. This is love, that he loved us, and he saved us. I want to read that verse again, verse 32. Then they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us, Genesis through Malachi. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found, and found, uh, found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and he has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. However, this is not the only time Jesus said, hey, listen, the whole entire Bible is all about me. All of the Bible points to me, Jesus. He says it elsewhere too. In John 5, 39, he says to uh, the religious leaders, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He said, it is these, the scriptures, that testify about me. You find eternal life in me. The scriptures point to me. He says, it's about me. Now, it's not because he's a narcissist. It's because he knows that he is our only hope. <laughs> There's no, there is no possible way for anybody else to fulfill every single one of the 318 prophecies of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. Only Christ could do that. He's saying that to us because it's for our own good. He's saying that because He loves and He wants to save you. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, it says, For I determined to know nothing. Excuse me. I want to explain why Paul uh, preached Jesus so passionately. And it's because of this. He says in 1 Corinthians 1 23, he says, But we preach Christ crucified. That's our message, Christ crucified. You know, sometimes <clears throat> you go to a church and the pastor, all he preaches is the gospel over and over and over <laughs> and over again. Because it's in the gospel, the Bible says, it's the power of God to save. It is the gospel that has the power to save a person. I cannot teach my children heart. I can only teach my children manners. I can say, Robert, say thank you. Thank you. Robert, say please please. He really wants it bad enough, he'll say please. Can I teach him heart? No, I can only teach him actions. And I can whip him if he doesn't follow those actions. But can I teach him to want? Can I teach him to desire the right thing? No, I can't. There's only one possible way for anybody to be taught heart in forgiveness, in generosity, in love. There's only one possible way to teach somebody the heart of humility. And that is through rehearsing the gospel over and over and over and over again. You know why? Because when you rehearse the gospel and you go like, I was lost. 
I was an enemy of God. I was blind. I was deaf. My heart did not respond. But God came. He gave me, instead of my heart of flesh, stone, He gave me a heart of flesh. He opened my eyes. He opened my mind. He allowed me to see. And suddenly I recognized just how absolutely depraved and lost I was. 100% in need. And God came and He gave 100% of who He was and saved me. Not one of my, not, not, there wasn't 1% on my side that contributed to the salvation experience. None of me, all of Him. And when I realized how absolutely lost I was and what the outcome of my lostness meant, and I realized that He saved me and He forgave me for every one of my sins, how can I not also go, God, I just... I just forgive everybody else. You see, now I can forgive because I realize how much I've been forgiven for. Now, when I realize the gospel and I practice the gospel and I realize how much God loved me when I was unlovely, when I was His enemy, He still loved me. Now I can go, well, how is it that He can love me so much and I can't even love that person a little bit? Can you see how the gospel teaches heart? How the gospel teaches humility? Think about generosity. After everything He's done for me, I can do nothing for somebody else. You see, that's why I can love somebody in the love of the Lord because I realize how much I've been loved. Now I can love somebody who doesn't deserve my love because I didn't deserve God's love. Now I can forgive somebody because I realize how much I've been forgiven. Now suddenly, nobody's better than me because I've been so humbled when I was made aware of my lostness and how depraved I was in my sin. Suddenly now I see we're all depraved. <laughs> we're all lost. And your sin no longer shocks me because I realize the nature of man. I realize the nature of fallen man. Let me say it that way. The nature of fallen man. And when I realize that, it teaches heart. It teaches humility. It teaches the heart gratitude. It teaches the heart thankfulness. It teaches the heart how to be generous. It teaches the heart how to actually forgive and not just say, I forgive you. I forgive you. Why? Because I have to. I forgive you. You know, when in fact it's not heart. You all following what I'm saying? The gospel is powerful. And this is why Paul confidently says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. That's it. Period. In 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says, For I have determined to know nothing among you except who? Jesus Christ and what? Him crucified. Nothing else. In Colossians 1, 28, he says, We proclaim Him. That's it. Preaching Christ was Paul's focus. Preaching Christ was his goal. Preaching Christ was Paul's absolute priority. Preaching Christ was Paul's purpose. His mission in preaching was lifting up magnifying, glorifying, and elevating Jesus Christ in all of his ministry. That was his goal. Paul did not teach Christian psychology. He did not teach self-importance or self-improvement courses. He did not teach personal motivation. Paul did not elevate self-importance, as I mentioned. Paul elevated Christ and Christ alone all the time, every time. Because that's what every single book in the Bible is about. So the conclusion here is that Jesus is set at the very pinnacle of the message of all the scriptures. 
Jesus is set at the very pinnacle of every doctrine found in theology. If there's a teaching that does not end at the place where Christ is lifted up above all else, then it is just motivation or it's just encouragement or it's just psychology. It's not the gospel. And it's not in unison with the intent of Scripture. So all Scripture is there for the purpose of revealing Jesus. So in our foundational verse that I read earlier on, <clears throat> Jesus said that it was necessary to do what? Suffer and then to enter His glory. So first we will look at the Old Testament Scriptures prophesying His suffering. Then we will look, if there's time left, at where the Old Testament prophesies He's entering His glory. So first, where in the Old Testament do we find the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ? How does He fulfill those prophecies? Now, I must just first tell you that Jesus fulfills 318. Now, I'm only going to show you a small handful. But for instance, <clears throat> Moses is a type of Christ. David is a type of Christ. Samson is a type of Christ. Every judge is a type of Christ. Every hero in the Bible, like I mentioned, is a type of Christ. We're not going to go through those today. We're going to touch just a fraction of it when we're looking at His suffering because that's what He mentioned on the road to Emmaus. Number one, the suffering of Jesus in Genesis. Here we see God the Father preaching. God actually delivers the first message in the Bible. He preaches in the garden, and the congregation is Satan, the serpent. And here, for the first time ever recorded, the gospel is mentioned, and it is mentioned by God Himself. Genesis 3, verse 15, you can look at the screens. It says, I will make you and the woman hostile toward each other. I will make your descendants and her descendants hostile toward each other. He will crush your head, and you will bruise His heel. There's the gospel right there. Yes, the serpent's head will be crushed. Satan will be defeated. But Christ will be bruised. In other words, there is a level of suffering that takes place in the act of crushing Christ's head on the cross. Then in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now think about that. The lions and the lambs were walking together in the garden. They were all eating fruits and vegetables and grass. But here, the Bible says that God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife Eve to clothe them. Where did he get the skin from? An animal had to die. This is the first time anything died. Adam and Eve had, had died spiritually, but this is the first time anything had bled. And here we see the suffering of the coming Messiah since there had to have been a death in order for man's shame to be covered. In the New Testament, we see Christ died so that our shame be covered. But right here in Genesis, an animal, a type of Christ, died in order to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. So God had to have killed an animal. And the killing of an animal in the Old Testament is a shadow of the killing of the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. In Genesis chapter 4, the blood of Abel's sacrifice must be shed in order for it to be a better and more acceptable sacrifice. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's offering was rejected. 
Cain had vegetables, but Abel what? Blood. Unless there's a sacrifice made where there's a death, there's no forgiveness of sins. Because God is a just God. Every crime will be punished, either on the cross or in hell forever, we choose. But God is a just God. He'll never, remain, he'll never become unjust. Do you realize your and my big problem is God's goodness? Uh, let me, <clears throat> our problem is the fact that God is good as fallen man. Let me explain it to you. Let's say, for instance, there's a serial killer, and as horrible as this sounds, he goes to loved ones into their home of yours, and he actually annihilates the whole entire family. You walk in there, and this is the most sobering moment Serial moment of life. And there he stands with blood on his hands, the serial killer. And immediately the cops run in and they arrest him. You saw this happen. You saw blood dripping from his hands. You saw him with a knife in his hands. And how you, it's almost probably impossible to not absolutely hate and want to see that man dead because of the crime that he committed against loved ones of yours. But on the day of the hearing, you go to attend the hearing. The judge calls this man forward. He's cuffed. He steps up to this judge, and the judge says, You know what? Today's a good day. I'm feeling good. I feel good. And uh, you know what? I don't want you to do this again, okay? So I'm going to let you go. So off you go. Don't do this again. You're lucky today. And he walks off. What happens to you sitting in the back row watching this? You see, you will go, where's the justice? That's what you would say. This is an unjust judge. This is an evil judge. We need a good one. We need a good judge. See that? You know what kind of judge that is? That's an evil judge. Why? That's what like the mafia guys would do. They would buy judges, you know? That's what the cartel would, they will buy these crooked judges that would do stuff like that. But our God is not a crooked, unjust judge. He's good. That's, that's man's problem. God's good. That's man's problem. He will not let spiritual criminals go free. Every spiritual crime has to be paid for. Yeah, but I'm not that bad. Every spiritual crime has to be paid for. There was a guy in the Bible, he was real pompous. And he said, he said, uh, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to this rich young ruler, he said, well, why don't you just obey the commandments? He goes, oh, those I've done. Those I've done. And Jesus said, oh, okay. Well, then take all your money, sell everything you have, and give it to the poor. And the Bible says 
he could not. Why? Because he had much wealth. He had so much wealth, he couldn't obey God, right? But what was Jesus saying to him? Jesus was saying, oh, so you say you fulfilling all the commandments? Yeah, I do. He says, oh, it's strange because right now it seemed like money was your God because the first commandment says you will have no other God. But apparently you do because you can't obey God, you obey money. See that? So what Jesus was trying to say to this pompous little guy, I can just see Jesus flicking him like, hey, you, who do you think you are? You're a sinner! <laughs> but he wouldn't need Jesus as long as he thought he wasn't. As long as he thought that he fulfilled those laws, as long as he thinks that, he, didn't, he wouldn't think he needed Christ. You see? And so Jesus went further. And, and Tina and I were having a conversation about it this morning, getting dressed. And I said, isn't it amazing how Jesus actually threw out, as I read the Sermon on the Mount, all Jesus was doing is He was proving how much you needed Him. Because He was saying, like, you were told that if you, if you commit adultery, you know, that's a sin. But I say to you, if you lust after another woman with your eyes, it's like you've committed that. How? Well, it's lust that drives you to it, right? It's like anger. He said, you, you were told that if you murder somebody, you, you're guilty of sin. But I tell you that if you're angry, you're already guilty of murder. An angry man is guilty of murder? Well, that's where murder starts, with anger. The root of the, is as much part of this tree as the fruit is part of this tree. You mean... I didn't commit adultery, but I lust. So you mean to say if I lust, I'm as guilty as the one who acted out the lust? Jesus said, yes, the root is as much part of this tree as the fruit, the outcome. You see? People don't just commit adultery. They first lust, and then they commit adultery, right? What was Jesus saying? He was saying, you have no hope. <laughs> He's like, you're a lost puppy. You're done. There's not one righteous Nobody, everybody alive needs Jesus. And only if you realize that how guilty you are of sin and how punishable sin is with death because God is good, He's a good judge, and, and sin has to be punished. Only then you go like, well, I need help. And Jesus goes, come unto me, I'll give you rest. Come unto me and I will give you I will carry those sins upon me. I will pay them. So you don't have to. That's the gospel. So in Genesis chapter 4, the blood of Abel's sacrifice must be shed in order for it to be a better and more acceptable sacrifice. You see, there's a sacrifice involved. A suffering must take place. In Genesis chapter 22, the ram caught in the thicket must be offered by Abraham. That was a foreshadowing of the Suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ is substitutionary suffering. He suffered so you won't have to. It was a substitutionary suffering. You see, the ram was grabbed and he was slaughtered so Abraham could take his son Isaac off the altar. Put the ram on there instead. So God could pull you and I out of eternal damnation and hell 
and he says, Jesus, you be on the cross. A substitutionary suffering had to take place in order for that sin to be paid for because that sin had to be paid. Why? So that God could remain a just judge. Every other religion serves unjust gods because not one religion offers a perfect, sinless substitute to go and pay your penalty. Not one. In Genesis chapter 22, we see that substitutionary suffering of the ram caught in the thicket. Then the Passover must be slain, and the blood must be applied to the doors. There must be a death. Jews still celebrate Passover. There must be a death of the one who is innocent on behalf of the guilty. If Jesus had one sin, He couldn't be your substitute. Because if he had sinned, then he himself would have had to go pay for his own sins. He couldn't be paying for yours. So we needed a perfect lamb, a sinless Christ, to take our place. That's why the Passover lamb has to be slain. So we conclude that in every one of these prophecies, suffering is the theme. Because in the gospel, the Christ suffered in your and my Place. Number two, the suffering of Jesus in Leviticus. Did you ever wonder if we were ever going to teach out of Leviticus? Here it is. The entire Levitical sacrificial system was foreshadowing of the suffering of the Lord. You see, in Leviticus 1 through Leviticus 5, we read that the head of the house must slay the young bull and must offer up the blood. Here is the suffering of the innocent on behalf of the guilty chapter 1 through chapter 5 in Leviticus. Also in Leviticus, we see the goat must be slain on a specific day called the Day of Atonement. That's why Jesus knew in order to fulfill that prophecy, He had to die on a, on a tree <laughs> on that day, Passover, in that city, Jerusalem. He knew it. He knew it. Number three, the suffering of Jesus in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 21, we see that the bronze serpent must be lifted up in the wilderness. In, all the, in other words, the cursed man must suffer by hanging on a tree. For those of you that don't know the story, Moses was leading all the Israelites through the wilderness. Snakes came from everywhere and started biting people. And they started dying. And Moses was told by God, take a rod a wooden rod that represents the cross. Take a wooden rod, but this was thousands of years before Jesus. And take a copper snake, make a copper snake and put it on that rod and lift it up into the air. And all of those Israelites that look to that, look to that snake, they'll be miraculously healed. And so it was. That was a picture, a type, a shadow, a foretelling, a prophecy of Jesus being lifted up upon a wooden cross, and all who would look upon Him instead of upon themselves to be healed. In other words, they have to, people would look at themselves and say, how am I going to fix my disease? They would die. But the people that would turn their back on themselves and look to the serpent on the cross or on the stick, they would be miraculously healed, you see. 
Why was it a serpent? Why not a picture of a beautiful Hollywood actor playing Jesus? <laughs> Nanette? Right, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we were joking about it this morning. Why, why not a picture of a man on a stick? No, it had to be a serpent. Why? Because serpent represents sin. And the Bible says he became what? Sin for us. He was our substitution. Substitute. So in Deuteronomy 21, we see that bronze serpent lifted up and Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. Number four, we see suffering in Jesus or Jesus' suffering in Psalms. 1,010 years before Jesus, David prophesied this prophecy right here about the coming Messiah in Psalms 22 verse 2. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anybody know where those words come from? Jesus crying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus is fulfilling prophecies that took place a thousand and ten years before. You think Muhammad gets to do this? You think Isa gets to? No. You think Joseph Smith's guy gets to do this? No. It's the Jesus of the New Testament. The real deal, because he fulfills all prophecy. This psalm goes on to prophesy in absolute detail regarding the suffering of the Christ and exactly how he would suffer. So I want to read this to you, but I want you to sit back and see how this is absolutely talking about Jesus on the cross, but 1,010 years early. Watch this. Psalm 22 verse 13, They have opened their mouths to attack me like ferocious roaring lions. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, not broken, out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like pieces of broken pottery. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Remember him asking? You lay me down in the dust of death, buried. Dogs have surrounded me, demons. A mob has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This is a prophecy. 1,010 1, years before, they pierced his hands and his feet. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare. They gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves. Amazing. They throw dice for my clothing. Exactly how it happened. Jesus suffering in Psalms. Number five, the suffering of Jesus in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 7a says, Thus says the Lord, the redeemed of Israel and its holy one, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nations. In other words, he must be despised. He must be abhorred. Jesus suffering in Isaiah 52, 14 and 15, it says, Yet many shall be amazed when they see him. Yes, even far off foreign nations and their kings. They shall stand dumbfounded, speechless in His presence, for they shall see and understand what they had not been told before. Watch this. They shall see My servant, capital S, beaten and bloodied, so disfigured 
one would scarcely know it was a person standing there. So shall he cleanse many nations. Wow. Wow. Thousands of years before Jesus. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind. He was despised and he was rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in no esteem. We cared. Other translations said we cared nothing for him. We cared nothing for him. I'm about one third. <laughs> we cared nothing for him. It's an amazing thing how very accurate. Now they are 313 or 18 prophecies like these that match, that Christ absolutely fulfilled. Which proves how authentic he really is. He is the one all the prophets spoke of. That's why when John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Because all of this was about to happen and was about to be fulfilled. May you and I never ever wonder if He's authentic, especially if we read through His words. We go like, how could that be God? How is that Jesus? I don't understand Him. Well, that seems unnecessary. Or how about this? Why does He seem so intolerant? So I'm not going to go to the second part of this message because remember the, there, was two part, there were two parts that was necessary for him to suffer and I just showed you all the Old Testament prophecies of his suffering. But then there are all these prophecies in the, in, the, in the Old Testament about him entering his glory which is where he rose from the dead. The Old Testament talks about it all over. But I want to ask this question if we see just how bloodied the suffering had to be how severe the suffering had to be. The murdering of Christ, the most innocent, purest God-man, there is no other, why He had to suffer so very graphically. Because that was paying our penalty. Oh, but I'm not that bad. He didn't have to go through all of that. I'm a pretty okay person. I don't kill. I don't murder. It's so funny. We're, we're, uh, at Minard, sometimes I, I love asking people this question, you know. Are you a sinner? No, I think sin is. I'm like, oh, so you're going to be God. Go ahead. You tell me. And that always stops the, argument, the conversation right there for some reason. <laughs> you know, truth is not subjective. It's subjective, right? It's not subjective. Can I give you a Bible? You know, what's the difference between subjective and objective? Well, if truth is subjective, then truth is subject to how I think. Truth is subject to how I feel about this, whether it be, it doesn't matter what it is. Truth is now subject to my experience. Truth is subject to what, well, I've experienced it this way, therefore, 
that's my truth. So today they're talking about my truth, his truth, her truth, based on their upbringing, their experiences, their mindsets, their desires, their emotions. I was born this way. Why? Because that's what I desire. Honey, we all desire stuff we, don't, we shouldn't have. <laughs> did God, men, did God, did God make you an adulterer? No. Well, then why lust? Well, I was born this way. <laughs> Does that mean you can? No. <laughs> you know, just because there's a desire doesn't mean God made you that way. But that's what people do. So they go, okay, well, that's truth to me because that's what I desire or that's how I feel, or that's how I see things. This is my opinion. This is my experience. That person right there basically is telling you that they are going to play God by becoming the source of truth. I will be the source of truth. I'll tell you what's truth and what's not truth. That's why truth is not subjective. Truth is universal. It's always true through all time for all people. It doesn't change. Truth is truth. So, what is objective truth? Objective truth is if it doesn't come from me, it comes to me from elsewhere. It's objective. It comes, I didn't come up with it. So truth is objective. That's why I always encourage people, like if you want to know the will of God, don't go walking in the park and, and ponder and then come up with a feeling and go like, actually, that's probably what it is. The only possible way for us to find truth is to actually read it. It's objective, not subjective. So when you ask people, are you a sinner? They'll say, no, not really. Well, have you ever lied? Well, yeah, but that's not serious. Have you, and, and to me... I'm as guilty as you are probably and as most people. We downplay sin. We trivialize sin because in our eyes, that sin is only small. In our thoughts, in our, because truth is not subjective. Because to me, that's not really that bad. I, therefore, am the one coming up with truth here. I'm playing God. And so I look at the cross I'm like, wow, Jesus really paid a high price for um, Hitler. Wow, look at that. Wow, Jesus really paid a high price for all those prostitutes out there, huh? Wow, Jesus. And that's the definition of arrogance. But the definition of humility is the opposite. It's like, oh, Jesus, you did that for me, a sinner. Remember when Jesus said there were two people went to the temple? There was a tax collector and there was a Pharisee. The Pharisee started praying and he looked and he says, God, thank you that I'm not as bad as that tax collector over there. And then the tax collector, he couldn't look up and he started beating his chest and he said, God, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. God, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, that Pharisee remains unforgiven. But this tax collector, he's going to be forgiven. And then Jesus explains why. He says, because he will reject the proud and he will give grace to the humble. Jesus defines humility this way. He says, the person who knows their need for forgiveness, that person is humble. 
But the people that walk around and go like, I'm not really a sinner. Do you ever lie? I've lied, but that's not really. That was to her and to him. It didn't matter to them. So my point is, why do we trivialize sin? Why do we not shudder at the idea of sin? Why do, why do we not recognize the wickedness of our sin? Why do we not stay up at night and go, God, I'm a sinner. For, why don't we run to Christ? Why do we do it one time in our lives and we go like, well, that was enough. I was seven, I think. I, I prayed this prayer. Why, do, why, don't we, why is this not real to us? Why do we play with sin? Why do we trivialize sin? And I'm one. Why do we do that? Why is sin not a problem to us, but it seemed to be so severe to God? Why is this so different? Because we think God is like us. He's not. He's 100% pure, 100% holy, 100% just, and He will punish all sin. He has to in order to remain just. Why does this not bother us? Why do people sin? Smirk at it. Go home tonight. Sleep soundly. Wake up tomorrow morning and just keep living. You can go to all, almost all churches today. Very few, very few will even mention sin. Sin is no problem. Nobody cares. Not realizing that sin is man's problem, and all of what the Bible says Jesus came to do was in order to deal with that problem. And if we saw it that way, and it became true for us that we lived in forgiveness because of Him, we couldn't trivialize it to the point of going back to it. It would be horrific. Now, I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you. All right, so all of us here are pretty much, okay, we sin small things, Right? Hands up if you've sinned only big things. You know? Okay. <laughs> if you think, yeah, okay. So, but let's say for instance, and this, okay, so let's say for instance, Bruce, you're a good man. You lose your temper, Psh, shouldn't. Bruce doesn't do this. But let's say you flip somebody off in the, on the, in the parking lot. I shouldn't do that. I made a mistake. Okay. Let's say, last, ah, I shouldn't do that. You know, like these little things, we shouldn't do that. Okay, so now, what we think is like, that's not, that's not good to do. But think, look at how Jesus died for Hitler. Me, I'm, I'm, I'm small stuff. But let's say, for instance, what happens is you end up stepping way over the line. Way over the line. You get into an argument, you take a gun, and you shoot a person. The only problem is nobody knows about it. You walk away, and now you're laying in bed that night knowing that you murdered somebody. What's that going to do to you? What's that going to do to you in one year's time, in five years' time, in ten years' time? You see, so what we do is we think God's like us. Well, that was small. That's big. But my anger, my anger, it's nothing. Committing adultery, oh, man, I feel so horrible. But you know what? 
lusting here and there, not, it's not a big deal. It's just, you know, it's, it's a mistake. It's not a sin. But God is not like us. Our sin is wicked. Why do we not shudder? I tell you why we don't shudder. I tell you why it's not wicked to us. I tell you why it's not evil to you. I'll give you an example. And I'll close with this. This is our altar call. Let's say, for instance, you are playing basketball with friends of yours. And this basketball game gets into a little bit of uh, emotions arising, people getting into argument. And eventually, you just had it. You run up to a friend of yours. You grab him on the collar, and you say, I'm going to kill you if you do that again. Don't ever do that again. And you almost want to get into a fight. The worst that can come from that, let's say, let's say it differently. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you out. If you say that to that guy, the worst that comes from it is people will say, hey, 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 chill, relax. It's just a game. It's just a basketball game. Yeah? That's the worst that will come from it. Let's put it in a different context. You get to stand in front of the President of the United States. You leap forward. You grab him at the collar, and you say, I'm going to take you out. The exact same words. The exact same threat, a different person. Guess what will happen? <laughs> Secret service? They will leap on you, brother. I mean, even if it has to be the military, but you will be captured, and you will be arrested, and you will be imprisoned. Why? Not because the threats were different. It was the same threat to a different person. It was because of who it was that you threatened. Now, do you understand? Like David said, God, after he was caught committing adultery with Bathsheba, she had a child. He went and murdered her husband Uriah, and he remained silent about it. He was caught red-handed by the prophet. And David falls on his knees before God, and he says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. Against you I did this. People don't realize how wicked their sin is or how severe their sin is or they don't realize how dangerous their sin is because they think they're sinning against another person. When in fact you've sinned against the holy God. And if you realize that your sin is against the holy God, then you'll go like, I need forgiveness. Why do you think people don't need Jesus? Because, <laughs> number one, they don't think they've sinned. Number two, if they think they've sinned, they think it was small sins. Number three, if they think they've sinned small or bigger sins, they've sinned against others. But they don't realize that all sin has to be punished. And all sin is against God. And, and God is absolutely holy and has to punish sin. And if we see it like that, guess what? Suddenly, Jesus, I need you. But if you don't see that, Jesus, well, he's one, many, you know. There are a lot of people who have come up with some great truths, you know, subjective ones. I'll close with this statement. Again, and I've made it a few weeks in a row, you may live very comfortably without Jesus, but the question is, can you die comfortably without Jesus. 
The answer is no. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads for a moment. Father, thank you so much for your word. And today, we stand before a holy God. We stand before a holy God as those who cannot be saved from God unless God Himself saves us from Himself, for Himself, through the perfect Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, the completely holy and innocent substitutionary death of His Son, Jesus Christ who hung upon the cross, and today we deny ourselves, we turn our backs on seeing ourselves as our own saviors to be good enough to be saved. We turn our backs on our own efforts, and we turn to Jesus, and we say we put our faith and our trust upon Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. What He did for me is enough for me to be made right with God eternally. The blood of Jesus is powerful enough to save me from the coming wrath. Christ is strong enough, like the ark, to save me from a judging, judging flood of fire. Thank you for saving. You said, God, that if we confess with our mouths, Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, if we give ourselves to His Lordship, if we give ourselves to Him as leader and us as followers, if we make Him our leader, if we make Him our boss, if we submit to His Word, say, you are Lord, you are right, I'm wrong, you are truth. We believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead. We will be saved. We're not saved because we're perfect. We are saved because Jesus is perfect. And we give ourselves to Him. I can never give myself to Him perfectly. I can never submit to Him perfectly. I can never follow Him perfectly. I can never serve Him perfectly. But I throw myself at His mercy. I don't sneer at Him. I don't walk away from Him. I don't ignore Him. I don't trivialize Him. I don't disrespect Him. I don't push Him away. I don't silence Him. I give myself to Him. Even if it is best I can, but yet not perfectly so. But when I turn to Him and I have faith in Him and I say what you did on the cross is sufficient to save me eternally, I know my life is in your hands. Today I pray, God, you save. If you are here today and you're saying, Jacques, I, I need to, I feel like I'm on the outside looking in. I need to be right with a just and holy God. I need to be right. I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm a sinner. I know I have a need for a Savior from my sin because sin will have to be punished. Today I tell you sin will either be punished in Christ upon a cross 2,000 years ago or it will be punished eternally in hell. But today I ask God that I want to be in Christ. Save my life. I believe in Jesus. I believe in His sacrifice. 
I believe his suffering was sufficient. I believe his blood is powerful enough. And I believe that he is my savior because I give myself to his lordship. In Jesus' name, amen.